Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Well, with all the stuff that's going on in the world, it's certainly apropos for us to be in the book of Genesis because we're seeing a culture degenerate right in front of us because they have lost their foundations. And when you lose your foundations, you have nowhere other to go than to go straight to Hades. And the culture and the way things are going, things are getting extremely awful to bear and watch. But that's why we're in the book of Genesis. And when you see the book of Genesis, and it lays the foundation for the rest of the Bible, but lays the foundation for the rest of society, it totally makes sense that when when you don't get this and you don't understand it and you don't live by this, you will immediately go upside down in your culture and individually as well. And so it makes sense that the Lord has brought us to the book of Genesis and we're going through it. Uh, let me make a couple notes before we start in. The first two chapters, it takes a while to get through. So you're, you just have to bear with us a little bit because once we get into the narrative parts, the pace will pick up. But the depth of the first chapter, you can spend an entire year on. Everything is there. I could build sermons off one word. That's how much depth there is in the first few verses. So just kind of bear with me as we kind of take our time in these verses because there's so much there to unpack. I want to share that with you and help you to see it because it's more than what you think. The well is very, very deep on some of these things. So once I get past chapter one, the pace will start picking up a little bit. So just kind of bear with that on that. Anyway, the title of today's message is Order Out of Chaos. And we're going to just look at a couple verses today, but the order out of chaos obviously started back in the first verse in chapter two. And we studied, sorry, verse two. We studied this last week and the week before. And the idea is that there was an initial creation. And then all of a sudden that initial creation goes into void and without form and the earth is in darkness and under a primordial saltwater abyss. And we talked about why. Well, we talked about that it represented that time of Satan and the angels who fell and represented that time of rebellion. And then God is now remaking the earth from the judgment upon earth. And like I mentioned last week, the original earth was judged because it was under Satan's dominion. And it was a mineral garden. The Garden of Eden was there, but it was a mineral garden, whereas Adam and Eve will be in a vegetation garden. And the original planet might have been a gem planet. And then once Satan lost that and his rebellion occurred, God judged the original planet. And that's why when you go from verse 1 to verse 2, there's an immediate change of something happened. And so we unpack that. And if you missed the last week's sermon and the week before, you can listen to that and kind of get caught up on all of this. Let's go back to verse 1 and just rehash it a little bit. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's what we're referring to as the original creation. Now, we're not saying there's a gap here. We're just saying that there was a time where only the angels existed 
and they saw this initial creation, and they were given dominion over this initial creation, but they lost it. And we talked about Satan's rebellion. Then in verse 2, that's why the earth was without form and void and had this this chaotic look to it, this, this scene of just chaos that God is now going to recreate the earth out of. And then it says, and the darkness was on the face of the deep. And the idea that earth was then swallowed up with water and this primordial abyss covered the gem earth. And it was just simply darkness. There was no light or anything like that. It was just just this chaotic situation. And you might say, well, why did he do that? Well, it's the same reason he did it when Adam and Eve sinned against him. He cursed the ground because of him. Because the idea is, if you have the hierarchy, the authority that has fallen, you can't have what he's over be over him. So you have to then curse or put underneath the individual that fell or the people that fell, or in that sense with Satan, angels that fell, whatever dominion they have cannot stay in that state. It has to be put underneath them. And so God judged the earth at that point in time, just like he did with Adam and Eve. And so we talked about that. And now the situation that we're entering into Genesis, the last verse of verse 2, and then the next one is God recreating out of the chaos, order for humanity, that he's going to create a habitat that's suitable for man out of this chaos. Note the order, from chaos to order, chaos to order. And I don't want you to miss that principle because there's points in it that point to us as well, point to our salvation, what he's doing to us personally, what do you mean? We were born into this life dead in sin. We're born dead. So our spirit, our soul is alive, but our spirit is dead to God. It doesn't relate to him. That's why we have to get saved. So our lives, if we go longer and longer without being saved, become more chaotic and more chaotic and more out of control because we don't have God helping us. We don't have salvation and we don't have his revelation of what he's trying to do with us. So your life will become very chaotic. People's lives will become very chaotic. But once a person gets saved, then what God does through salvation is to create order in them out of the chaos. And sanctification is about that. We get saved, and then he starts conforming us to the image of Christ, order, and eventually glorifies us. So all through these 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 passages, you'll see principles like that that apply actually personally to us. Out of chaos comes order. That's what sanctification's about. So it's even, you can see this metaphorically, our salvation in the actual creation. It's absolutely amazing. Well, anyway, let's now then go to the second part of this passage of how God starts creating or recreating this chaos. And it says this, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So let's unpack that a little bit. The Spirit of God obviously is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity is involved in creation. By the way, rabbinic theology called the Spirit of God the Spirit of King Messiah. They said this before Jesus had come on earth. So in the rabbi's mind, in the Hebraic mind, when they saw the Spirit of God, it represented the Spirit 
of King Messiah, which is exactly what ends up happening in the New Testament, that it's the he's called also the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of Messiah in the New Testament. Well, anyway, the third person of the Trinity then is hovering over the face of the waters. The word hovering in Hebrew is merakafet, and the idea is like an eagle hovering over its young. And let me add some other things to it so you can get kind of a good idea. It's the term that not just hovering, but it's a movement of going back and forth, vibrating, wave-like, fluttering, flying back and forth. And I think there's a hint there of how God created. We don't know how all how he used his power to create, but there's a hint there because there's a transmission of energy that comes from the Holy Spirit to this watery mass that's there in judgment. Henry Morris, if you have his commentary, will note the scientific aspects of this. And it's a good commentary to pick up called Genesis Record. And he notes that it's possible what's happening is a transmission of energy that's happening. We already understand that the nuclear forces are already in matter. But basically, in, in our universe, in our, the world that we live in that God created, there are basically two forces at work. The first one is gravitational forces, and the second one is electromagnetic spectrum. And basically, both of those are fields of activity that get transferred energy by wave motion. Now, follow me. When those two things get transferred energy, it activates them. We know this from physics. And it's, it's this rapid back and forth movement of any vibratory aspect that creates waves and then gives the energy to either the gravitational forces or the electromagnetic spectrum. So what you're really seeing, according to Henry Morris, is where energy comes from. It comes from God and through wave-like, because the idea of the Holy Spirit going back and forth, creating a wave, is exactly what we see in physics, is how energy gets transferred to those two forces. And so, basically, the idea is the Holy Spirit is activating. He's the energizing force of creation. And obviously, the Messiah is the creator, and, and he's using the Holy Spirit to transmit energy. See, energy cannot create itself. It has to have an outside source. And so, the Holy Spirit is doing this. This is why scientists, let's, let's note this, why scientists can't explain their theory of the Big Bang. They can't explain it. They say, well, it just happened. Again, it's a theory, and it doesn't jive with the Bible, but here's the deal. They know in physics that energy can't create itself. You have to have an outside source to infuse energy into the system. Hence, the Bible is correct. It is the eternal being, God, who infuses the energy into creation. And get, again, they won't bow a knee to that. They won't go along with that. And so that's why there, a lot of them are in denial. But anyway, one of the things you have to understand is not only the Holy Spirit is activating things, it's the Son of God that's, that's orchestrating the whole entire creation. But what I want you to see is, 
uh, the seven steps of God's creative work. And I think I put that in your handout. I'm not going to go too much into this, but I wanted you to see how God in Genesis is creating. And these are the seven steps of God's creative work on your handout. If you'll notice, there's seven of them. Seven represents perfection. So anything God does is perfect. And notice, if you just go through what he does, his first one is his creative word, God will say. Then he creates fiatly, let there be, just creates out of nothing. Then there's a fulfillment, and there was. Then there's the action, and God made. Then he'll name and bless, and God called and blessed. And then there's God's evaluation and satisfaction on it. God saw that it was good. And then you'll have a terminus. So the evening and morning followed by the number. Okay. So those seven steps are there to offset the chaos that comes from Satan's judgment, the tohu and vohu. So days one and three rectify the tohu without form. And he does it by dividing. Okay. So day one, he divides light from darkness, which we'll study today. Day two, divides air and sky from water and sea. Day three, division of land and plants. Then if you look at day four and six, they rectify the vohu, the emptiness. And so he fills day four, the permanence of lights. Day five, uh, filling the air and sea with birds and fish. Day six, filling the land and vegetations with animals. Now, if you want to take your pen or pencil and connect these, Day one and four go together because you you divide and then fill. Day two and day five go together. And day three and day six go together. They're connected. Now, they happen in sequential order, but on those days where the division is, he then fills it. Okay? Now, here's the principle I want you to get. This picture of creation, the seven steps God takes, and then how the days relate to each other, Divide, fill. Divide, fill. Divide, fill. Okay, what does that mean? Well, there's a principle there, and it's all throughout Scripture, that what God wants out of us is he wants us to separate from the world. He wants us to remove ourselves out of this world because it's controlled by Satan, who is the usurper of Adam and Eve. And so he, does, he wants us to divide or separate, and he'll do this with Levitical law, with Israel. He'll tell them what they need to be separate from and what they need to divide from. And it's a common theme. Even if you go into the New Testament, even the book of Revelation says, come out of her, my people, separate, divide. What did Jesus say that he comes to do? He said, I did not come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. A father will be against his son, and a mother will be against her her daughter, and so forth. And he says, a man's own family will be his own enemies. What was he saying? I've come to divide humanity up. You see the divide? Right now, you're divided from humanity. God has pulled you out and saying, I don't want you part of the world. Okay, that's the essence of becoming like Christ. You must pull out from the world. And then he says, feel. Divide you out, and then I feel. 
So it's not just enough for you to separate from the world and just be there empty. You must be filled with what God wants to put in you. See, creation is a picture of our own salvation, our own sanctification. So we divide out, and what does he put into us? The word of God. We get filled by the Holy Spirit, controlled by him, and we're filled with the word of God. That's the putting into us. That's the renewing of our mind. So the principle in creation is a principle of salvation. It's amazing. And it just continues to go on like this over and over. But that's why I wanted to show you that, is you're looking at a a diagram of how you get sanctified, how you become more like Christ. And now we move into the first day, and it again is pointing to our salvation, and it's pointing to our sanctification and our walk with the Lord. Follow me on this. Verse 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, to unpack this a little bit, you have to know a few things. First of all, it says Elohim, but it's a specific person of the Trinity that's actually doing this, that's bringing light into being. Now, again, you can use your handout, but the rabbis considered the Elohim here the Memrah. Okay, In Hebrew, the word of God is called devar. In Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke and the language of the first century and the language of the rabbis, and they wrote the scriptures in Aramaic many times, and that's called the Targum, they came up with the concept of the Memra, that it was the Memra who's doing this. Well, that's interesting. And interesting enough, they had a whole set of ideas that they came up about the Memra. And if you take your hand out, I'm just going to go briefly over that. The seven aspects of the Memra was this, that the Memra is distinct from God, but the same as God. They couldn't put their finger on it, but every time they saw the Word of God, they saw it's God, but it's distinct. He's distinct from God. And then every time they saw the Memra, and number two, he was the agent of creation. Huh. Throw up there Psalm 33 real quick. By the devar or memra of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. Notice the distinction and that it's a specific Yahweh called the memra. So that they couldn't reconcile. They didn't understand what was happening, but they noted it. Let's go back to your handout. Number three, the memory is the agent of physical and spiritual salvation. Four, the memory is the means by which God takes on visible form. Five, the memory is the means by which God signs his covenants. Six, the memory is the agent of revelation. And seven, the memory is the logos of the New Testament. And that's why John uses the word logos in the New Testament, because he's deriving the concept from the Memra. Take a guess what the rabbis figured out, but they wouldn't admit. It's Jesus, right? You can't get other than Jesus, the visible manifestation of Yahweh, the one who created, the one, they, they said it. So here comes Jesus in the first century. They knew the Memra. John calls them the Logos, which is the Greek form of Memra. And they denied him. And here's what the rabbis come up with. 
So the person here, the second person of the Trinity, is the Mimra here that's actually doing the creation. So God, it's kind of like this. God is the architect. He's the designer. Jesus then is the one who initiates creation, and the Holy Spirit is the one who puts the energy into creation. So you have all persons of the Trinity at work. But particularly in this case, you're looking at the work of the Memra or Jesus of Nazareth. So just to make sure we understand that. So with that being said, this is why John in John chapter 1 says this. He says, in the beginning was the Word, the Memra, the Logos. And the Word, the Memra, was with God, and the Word, Memra, was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Notice the last phrase. In him was life, and that life was what? The light of men, and that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Why did he tack on that? Why did he add, and he was light? Because in this verse, the first thing the Memra, the second person of the Trinity, Yeshua, creates, he's light. Now follow it. This light, let there be light, and there was light, is interesting. In the Hebrew, it says, let there be, and it's Yehi in Hebrew, and there was Yahvehi. That's interesting. Yahi va Yahehi in Hebrew, which is very, very close to God's personal name, Yahweh. So when it says in the Hebrew that the Memra said, let there be, and there is, and there was, it's actually pointing to his name, Yahweh. It's Yahi Erva Yahihe. And it points to him that Yahweh is doing this special light for creation. Why is it doing that? It's identifying who the Elohim is. It's God's personal name that he that Moses asked for. Who shall, how, who shall I say is sending me? I am is sending you. So the great I am, the Memra, is creating light. It's messianic tones all over the place. Think about this. According to Isaiah 60, verse 1, the rabbis taught that the light of the world would illuminate Israel with the light of the Messiah. That's how they interpreted this verse, that this was the Messiah. And you think, how did they miss this? I mean, all the rabbis would commentate on this. I read their stuff. It's, it's, what, it's what they're saying about this verse. It's the light of the Messiah. Wow. What is this light? There's two theories on it. It could be the Shekinah glory of God that illuminated this creation because the sun is not created until day four. Or it could be just a special light that was used for the seven days of creation. That's the rabbinic idea is that it was only used for the seven days of creation. So either one you choose, it's okay. The Shekinah glory of God light or it's a special light just for this particular reason. Okay. But why create light before the sun, before the luminaries that he does in, in, in verse, uh, or sorry, in, in day four? Why do that? 
Yahweh is trying to show all of humanity that he is not dependent on the sun and the moon to light up our earth, that he can create light without any secondary means. He could just bring it into existence. And you think, well, what is the big deal about that? Look, in the ancient world, that's not how they thought. They thought these their gods created off eternal matter and created these things off of matter that existed. But now the Hebrew scriptures are saying, no, no, no. He doesn't even need the sun. He can create light without the sun. That's huge. This is how powerful of a being he is, that he can create fiatly. Amazing. Now, verse 4. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. Now, follow me. It's where we can unpack this. Let's start with, and God saw. The issue of God's seeing is a big concept in Scripture. It is a major theme. And what do you mean? Well, even Hagar said that God was El Royai. He's the all-seeing God. We would call that in theological terms, he's the God that's omniscient. He knows all. He sees all. We would understand it. What was the big deal about this? Because in the ancient world, they didn't think their territorial or tribal gods could go outside of their country, he, that they couldn't see anything beyond past the borders, that they were tribal gods. But this God is the one true God who sees all things everywhere in all places. So there's nothing that can be done in the secret. He's the seeing God. He's not only the living God, but he's the seeing God. And Jesus made this remark, whatever you do in the dark is going to come out in the light. What have you said in secret? It's going to be shouted on the rooftops. What was he referring to is that God sees everything that everybody does. And everything will be held to an account. Every word, idle word he said, will be held to an account of that. That should bring to people listening to this a serious reality check. Really, that he sees everything I've done in secret? Yes, he knows your thoughts. He knows your heart. He's known what you've done. That's a different type of mentality to think about. And a lot of people just don't want to go there. A lot of people think that God doesn't see what they're doing. A lot of people think that God doesn't hear what they're, they're saying. But that brings an incredible amount of account. And that's why they, in Scripture, it's, he's emphasized as the seeing God. He sees everything. Now, what did he see in this passage? He saw the light that he created and that it was good. That's his evaluation of it. And then he divides it, the light from the darkness. So let's talk about the good. When it uses the word good, it's referring to the benefit of mankind. That anytime he creates something and it benefits mankind, he'll say it's good. And then he divides, because darkness exists because of judgment, he divides this light that's good from the darkness, giving you a moral aspect to something, if you're not catching that. He says, light is good. What's darkness? Not good. You see how he divided it out? Okay, follow me on this, because this is extremely important that you catch this. It's simply not just referring to creation. 
It's referring to a theme that's all through the Bible. Let me give you the hint. Let me give you the mystery to this. Light is a metaphor. It's real light. This is real creation. Don't get me wrong. But it's also a message in the creation. And here's the message. Light is a metaphor for revelation. Revelation from God. Not the book of Revelation, but revelatory information that only comes from Yahweh. Okay, so follow me on this. The light is real light, but it represents revelation coming from God. And what does God say about that revelation? It is good. And I'm going to divide that good revelation from the bad or the darkness. So light represents revelation from God that's good, and darkness represents non-revelatory information that's bad. And he separates the two out. Now, there's no doubt he's creating the days. And we'll get into that in just a bit. But that's creation. I want you to see the metaphor, because this metaphor is carried all through Scripture, by the way. The light and darkness themes. Okay? So think about this. He is saying to you and I, in a metaphorical sense, I am the only one that can give you the right information. I am the only one that can tell you what is good. And I am putting the boundaries around it by separating things out from darkness to light. So what I say is good is good. But you have no ability to challenge me on that. If I tell you it's good, it's good. If I tell you darkness is bad, it is bad. But what does Isaiah 5 say? Woe unto anyone who calls evil good and good evil. Right? Which is exactly what our country is doing. Which is exactly what a lot of people want to do. So follow me. Revelation from God tells you and I what is good. God says marriage between a man and a woman is good and right. If you deviate from that, you're in darkness, right? God says, I create male and female only. If you deviate from that, you're in darkness and you're challenging Yahweh. Because he says, I am the one who determines what is good. And how is he determining what is good? Arbitrarily? No. He says it's good if it benefits mankind. Hence, what's the conclusion when I look at gay marriage or transgenderism or abortion? It doesn't benefit mankind. Therefore, it's darkness. He'll only establish goodness with what benefits mankind. So anybody that says, oh, these things in darkness are benefiting mankind, no, they're not. They're destroying you. And you don't have a right to challenge that. You can live that way, but you'll destroy yourself. So you see, God is saying, you can't determine reality because you're not me. Only God can establish reality. Only God can create fiatly and tell you this is good, this is bad. There's more to it than just simply creation. There's messaging that's going on all through this passage. Absolutely amazing. 
And notice the dividing happens. He divides the light from the darkness. Why? Well, it's not just simply establishing a work week and a 24-hour day and, and all that. It does that. There's no doubt about it, and I'm going to hit on that. But it's simply trying to say to you and I, I'm telling you what's bad. And if I say it's bad, it's bad. Don't challenge me on that. So there has to be a division. See, right now in our culture, there is no division. Have you noticed that? There's no division. Everything goes. You just do what you feel like. If it makes you happy, then do it, is the, the motto of Satanism and the world. And God says, no, the world is divided. There's evil elements in it. There's good elements. And I'm the only one that tells you what it is. It's actually going against the grain of our current culture. Wow. And then it, let's go to verse 5. And it says, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Okay, so then he starts naming it. And so when you see naming, this is important. In the Hebrew mindset, when you see an individual, even God name certain things, it signifies sovereign authority. It signifies that he's the king. He gets to tell you what it's like. And so God naming the light day is showing his sovereignty. He has the right to do that. And then notice that once he does this, and he establishes the difference between the two and names them, it means it's fixed. It's fixed from this point on that day and night will never be blended together like it was, and that this time now is fixed. What does that mean metaphorically? That if God says something is good 2,000 years ago, it doesn't change in the 21st century which is exactly what people are trying to do. Well, that was for an ancient culture. They didn't understand homosexuality. They didn't get it. Hey, look, I don't care what the people lived like 2,000 years. I just know the God of the Bible is saying if it was wrong 4,000 years ago, it's wrong today. In the story. It's not something that, well, this tribal deity called Yahweh really didn't understand the 21st century. Huh, no, no. He's an eternal being. He's outside of time. Whether he's talking to Moses or he's talking to you in prayer, it's irrelevant, the time span, because he's outside of time. So it's foolish for anyone to challenge, well, that was long ago. We're more progressive now. We think differently. Yeah, I understand homosexuality. They were against homosexuality back in there, but that was all wrapped up in idolatry. Now people are monogamous and they really love each other. Really, you're going to try that one on an eternal being, huh? You're going to try that one. Good luck. Try it out. Because he's saying, I set the boundaries. It's fixed. What I say goes. So our culture doesn't have a problem with you and I. I know they get mad at us, right? It's not a problem with you and I. You guess who they have a problem with? Yahweh. That's who they have a problem with. They don't like being told what to do. Okay. All this to say, and then he goes, he goes and so evening and morning were the first day. Well, that's interesting. So evening and morning, the morning, were the first day. Notice the pattern. We think in days of, yeah, morning, and then it goes to night, and we think that's a day. It's actually the opposite of what Westerners think. 
the day starts with night and then goes to light, darkness to light, chaos to order. Follow the pattern. The way the rabbis describe this, they used metaphorical terms or anthropomorphism, I should say, with Yahweh. And they would say that God stands always facing the light, so to speak. So as he's creating, the darkness is behind him and he's always facing the light. And I get why they're saying that, because if the day is structured by night first and then you move to light, we would always be pointing towards light. We would always be coming out of the darkness into the light, looking for the new morning, the dawn of a new morning. Do you know what Jesus' other name is? You got it. The morning star. Why is he called the morning star? Because of Genesis here telling you that the days are constructed by evening and then morning. So the idea as a believer is I'm always looking to get out of the darkness, out of the chaos, into the light where Jesus is, the, the morning star, to get to morning, to get to day. You think about how troublesome night is for a lot of people. Think about it. They can't sleep. It's horrible. And they can't wait till daylight breaks, especially if you're dealing with depression or anything like that. The nights are the worst time for people. Days are better. High demonic activity happens, guess what time? Nighttime. Is it any surprising that the kingdom of darkness works during their period of time? No. So we're always, as believers, looking for that morning, that morning star. So what's the idea about revelation? Because light represents revelation. Is we come out of the darkness and we go into the light of God's revelation. We move from our, our darkened understanding about the world, our darkened understanding about him and about ourselves, and we move forward into revelation. The inspired word of God and what he says about him, about us, about reality. That's how you actually stand in salvation. It's amazing. The days are structured so that we can look towards salvation. It's absolutely amazing that he did that. Let's talk about the days. Because there's all these weird liberal ideas that these are day ages and stuff like that. It's not. The day in Hebrew is yom, Y-O-M. It occurs 2,291 times. And any time it comes with certain subsets that accompany it, it means a single 24-hour day. Did I put that on my outline? Do I have some things? I want you to see this. Anytime the word yom appears and it has plus a number, it's always a 24-hour day, 410 times. When you have evening and morning together without a day, it's always a 24-hour day, 38 times. Evening and morning with a day, always 24-hour day, 23 times. And night with a day, always 24-hour day, 52 times. You will not get past the context of what it says. Now, here's my point. There are liberal theologians, liberal Christians, uh, liberal seminaries that are teaching day ages. And you know what that is? It's an accommodation to evolutionary theory. If you read the Bible on your own without going to a science class, you could only conclude six 24-hour days. The reason liberals are starting to put more time in is they're accommodating evolutionary theory, geology theory, which is all theory, by the way, 
and they're in, including that to say, well, we want to we wanna be accommodating to the scientific community. Hey, Darwin's theory is proven wrong. Why don't you get in the right boat? All this day-age stuff is nonsense because the evidence actually proves a young earth. But nonetheless, that's, that's what we're, we're fighting against. Even in our own camps, you have day-ages that people believe in. And it's like you, you have death before Adam and Eve. You have all kinds of theological problems with this. And again, I, I, I can agree to disagree, but there's issues here. You can't get that from this text and you can't get from the context. And I know what liberal theologians will say. Well, it says in Second Peter chapter 3, a day is a thousand years is a thousand years as a day. Really, you want to try that one on? Do you even know the context of Second Peter? And, well, let's, let's talk about that because you guys like to use that a lot, you liberals, liberal theologians. Here's what you say to them. Well, according to the context, Peter's talking about scoffers saying, where is this coming that has been promised? And Peter responds, look, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years a day. What he is saying is this, irregardless of how long ago Jesus made that promise that he's coming back, time is irrelevant to him. A human being can make a promise, and yes, the longer it goes, it looks like the human being's not going to fulfill his promise. But with God, when he says, I'm coming back, he could say that today, or he can say it 2,000 years. It's irrelevant to him because he's outside of time. And so when he says he's coming back, he's not slack on his promise, Peter is saying. So you can't use that text to prove day ages, because Peter is saying God's outside of time. And for some reason, they just keep wanting to go, go into that well and trying to use it, but you can't. The point, you have an earth that was created in very recent history. It looks old, but you know why it looks old? Because God, number one, created it in maturity, and number two, Noah's flood did a lot of damage to make things look old. But I want to I want to unpack that just a little bit. And let's go through this because people will say, well, there's, there's all this carbon 14 dating and there's all this radioisotope dating that dates the earth 4.6 or 4.5 billion years ago. And the universe is 65 billion years ago. Really? Do you know where they got that date from of 4.5 or 4.6 million, a billion years? A meteorite. Yeah. It came from a meteorite. And again, the high levels of lead let it date very old. And you think, well, are those dating things like carbon-14 or radioisotope dating, is that reliable? No, they are not. If you've ever studied them, they are unreliable. You can't even use carbon-14 for anything that's been dead over several thousands of years. So therefore, you can't carbon-date fossils. The other thing is, especially if they're millions of years old, according to them, because there's nothing left in them. But here's the interesting thing. The fossils do give carbon-14 datings, which means they're not that old. Interesting enough that with radioisotope dating, it, is, it gives you so much unreliable information that it simply can't even be trusted. For instance, let me give you a lava flow. Just take a lava flow, just an average lava flow somewhere on the planet. When they do radioisotope dating on a, a lava flow, 
you and I with any common sense says when we test that, that's brand new rock. Day one, right? We're right here watching new rock be formed. It should date day one. Guess what new lava flows date with the radioisotope dating? About 210,000 years to 230,000 years. Now, how can you be that off? How can you be that off? It's day one, and you, you're telling me there's a date that it's 230,000 years? What are you talking about, man? I'm right here watching a lava flow. They hope you don't understand that. If you go to Hawaii and you go to Capi, uh, if I can pronounce this right, Capipelilu, this flow erupted. It's right here on this edge, right here by the Kona Airport in the main area of Hawaii, the big island. This started erupting in about 1800, 1801. They dated this volcano in Hawaii 140 million to 2.96 billion years, but yet it's a brand new lava flow. How did it get such an old date? Or even Mount Kilauea in Hawaii. It's currently erupting. It started back in 1977. They estimate it's probably about 200 years old, yet it dates 21 million years old. How is that possible? Something's wrong with the dating. If you go to trees, trees that we know by the tree rings are 300 years old. Yet when you do a tree, some of these trees that are 300 years date to 485,000 years. That's unbelievable. What kind of science is this? You go to the Grand Canyon, go to Vulcan's throne. They date that Vulcan's throne dates 10,000 years ago. At least that's closer, right? But yet Native Americans who live in the area said it was, it was erupting with their ancestors just a few hundred years ago. How can they, as eyewitnesses, this was erupting, and yet they say it's only it's 10,000 years old? Something's wrong. What you start seeing is there's more evidence for a young earth, and the dating mechanisms don't work. Do you know how they date a fossil? This will blow your mind. Because there's supposedly no carbon-14 in it. So they can't date it by uh, carbon-14 dating. This is what they do. They go to the geologist, the paleontologist who studies dinosaurs, goes to the geologist and says, how old do you think these rocks are? And he goes, I don't know. How do you think the fossil is? And he goes, I don't know. I'm basing my, my opinion on the fossil based on what you say about the geological structure. And he goes, well, I'm basing my geological structure on what you say the bone is. You have what's called circular reasoning. The paleontologist will only date the bone according to what the geologist says. So at some point, somebody says, well, I'll just throw out a date. And based on this, it's what it is. And it's like, wait a second. Wait a second. Where's the scientific method here? We're just simply throwing out dates because it fits your narrative? Yeah. It's that unscientific. And you know the interesting thing is that when geologists or evolutionists come to faith in Messiah, you know what they admit? They admit that this was all a rigged game and they had to create this narrative of evolutionary theory to satisfy their sexual mores. And now that they're a Christian, they said, the jig is up. We were all lying. This is the only way I could justify my crazy lifestyle. Really? That's what's behind it all? It's like the climatologist. I can't remember his name. He came out. He just retired. And he says, yeah, it's all a joke. 
Sorry. We well, why would you keep a lie going? Well, we got grant money from the federal government. Now we get fired if I said anything wrong. So I'm going to go along and start goose-stepping along with the scientific community. Wait a second. Something's not right here. Yeah, something's not right. What is the evidence of a young earth? Let's just go into creation before we get into our application. Real quick. Red blood cells and hemoglobin found in unfossilized dinosaur bones of a T-Rex. Recently found several decades ago. What do you mean? It had red blood cells in it. It had hemoglobin in it. Which means it can't be 4.5 billion years ago. It had it in the tissue. That means it's fairly recent. There it is. Maybe they'll start Jurassic World with this thing and take the DNA and put it in a thing and make a dinosaur. Then we'd have another problem. Who knows? They keep recycling that movie over and over again. And it's just, it's, it's the same storyline. The Tyrannosaurus gets out of control and we got to capture him. Um, I, come up with something better than that, man. Anyway. Radioactive release of helium into atmosphere is currently going on. If the Earth was 4.5 billion years, all the helium out of the rocks would have been into the atmosphere and had escaped. It's still escaping, though, out of the rocks, which shows you a fairly young Earth. Supernova explosions of massive stars that happen in the galaxy. If the galaxy is 65 billion years old, we should expect to see stage three of supernovas, which is a major expansion of their explosion. And yet, what do we see? Only about stage one or two on supernovas, which means they haven't been going on that long. It's just happened fairly recently. The moon. Do you know the moon recedes from its orbit one inch per year? Okay, so if you work backwards, and again, I'm not saying this is the right date. I'm just saying if you work backwards, the moon could would have touched the earth 1.37 billion years ago, which is too short for their 4.5. The moon would have been touching planet earth if their dates are right. Well, how do they reconcile that? How about meteoric dust? You know, we were real freaked out going to the moon. Did you know that? And you know what they were worried about? The evolutionary theory thought there would be a major layer of dust. It would be like powder, and they, they, wouldn't, they didn't know how deep it was. And some of them actually theorized the moon dust would be 150 feet thick. And guess what? We got there, and the moon dust, or the meteoric dust, was only about an inch or so. What does that say about the moon? It's not that old. If only an inch of dust is on there. They were, based on their calculations, they were expecting 150 feet of dust. 150 feet. And when Neil Armstrong got on there, an inch. Got a problem. Got a problem. Salt. Salt in the water. What do you mean? Well, if we're that old... The oceans would have become so salty because of erosion, they, were, they would be uninhabitable by anything, but yet they're not. So, again, that kills old earth. Evidence for rapid formations of geological strata. Look at all these pictures and notice the same thing. Look at the strata. This is evidence of not long periods of geological time. Just go ahead and come through this. This is a period of rapid, rapid deposit in mud. And the Grand Canyon is a great example of this. Rapid deposit 
of mud and sand and then instantly fossilizing. And you see this all over the planet. You can go up to Shark Tooth Hill and see the layers right here in Bakersfield. You can go to the coast. And if you go to the beach and turn back to your, to where the cliffs are, you will see the folded layers that were just packed it on quick. That's not evidence of an old earth. That's evidence of a young earth that went through a global flood. In fact, you'll see even some trees standing up there upright in some of these layers. That doesn't happen naturally. There's a tree right there. How did a tree get impacted on multiple layers and it's standing straight up? The only way a, a tree like that gets stood up is in water. And the, it'll float down by the roots when it settles, and it settles up, and then the, the compaction of mud comes in and, and fossilizes it. That's a leftover of Noah's flood. And you'll, you, you, in all these, these areas, you'll see these, these trees that have been petrified in these fossilized layers. Amazing. Then you have the erosion of the continents. If the continents were eroding and it's 4.5, you would have no more continents. They would all have been eroded. So that doesn't help. And the last one I want to show you is dinosaur tracks. All over the planet, you can see dinosaur tracks, and a lot of them are running in a certain direction to get away from something. Go figure that out. I wonder why they're all running in a herd trying to get away from something. As you'll see, they're running from water. And then a lot of them are clumped up together in all these deposits in Montana, in the Badlands, and there are these dinosaur graveyards that have all been put there by water. And they're, they're just gripped in where the water got them. I mean, it just took them right in. Some of them are fighting. Some of them have food in their mouth. It's just instant compaction and then, and then fossilizes them. Anyway, the dinosaur tracks that are, of, are outside above ground that people actually go and see. You can go in Texas, and you can see these dinosaur tracks. You can go to Montana, you can see these dinosaur tracks. If the earth had dinosaurs 5.5 billion years ago, these dinosaur tracks would have eroded. They would not be available for us to see. They would have been gone. And yet, we live in a, in a time period where you can see, look at that, there's a dinosaur track. That means there's a lot of evidence for a young earth. And I can go on and on and on and on. But suffice it to say, the Bible is showing you, and the evidence outside of the Bible is pointing to a young earth. Okay. What's the application? We've got to get out of here. There's a lot to take in. We're talking about light. And we're seeing that there's a young earth. And all. Of, and a day is 24 hours. We've got to make sure we understand that. Because here's the deal. If you don't take Genesis literally, if you don't believe a day is a 24-hour day, then you're opening the door to immorality. You're like, what? Yeah, let me tell you how you get there. If, if day doesn't mean day, and then you reinterpret it to fit your narrative... What's going to stop you on other things in the word of God? What is going to stop you about redefining marriage? What is going to stop you about redefining sexuality or gender, for instance? Or how about life? If you can excuse away saying it's a woman's right and be like the Cuomo up there in New York and say, we can infanticize babies 
up to the very time that they're born, you're in darkness. What you're seeing in our culture is a society of death. How can anyone say, let alone abortion at any point, but then at the point of it's possible they can abort and murder a child right the day before it's born or while it's being born. If we're no different than the Phoenicians, the Canaanites, the worshipers of Baal and Asherah who burn their children, I don't know how we're any different. Do not think for a moment God's going to turn a blind eye to that with this infanticide happening. And yet the people are cheering about it, going crazy about it. There's going to be a day of reckoning. God is not going to let that happen. He's going to do something about that. And yet, where are the voices? Where are the people crying out against it? Silence, eerie silence is happening. Anyway, application. We take this in a literal sense. Okay, so then what is this idea about light? Okay, follow me. Just uh, recap this. Light is a metaphor for revelation. Revelation only coming from God. God sees all. He judges all. He creates the revelation. He, He tells us it benefits us. Anything he says is good. It benefits us. He divides and separates out the light. What's the application? Go to Matthew 6.22 for me. Jesus said this. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. There's that metaphor of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, again, context, he was talking about money, okay? And, 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 but again, you can take the principle, and this is how you apply it. The principle, think about this is using eyes as a filter for how you see the world, okay? Eyes are the filter for how you see reality, okay? Right now, he's telling you, this is good, this is bad, this is what reality is, and this is what not reality. Jesus is then saying, if your eye is good, what was good in this passage? The light was good. What was the light for? A metaphor for revelation, If your eye filters reality through the word of God, your whole body will be full of light, right? You'll allow it to seep in and you'll live it out. But if your eye, your filter, doesn't use the scriptures properly or doesn't use them at all, the way you're going to act is you're going to act in darkness, If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Basically, how will you act? How bad could you possibly act if you don't interpret the world through the lens of divine revelation? If God says murdering infants is wrong, which he does in the womb, how bad is that darkness if you don't comply? How bad is that? I mean, if if you're... If you see our culture the way it's going, they're not filtering reality through the scriptures anymore. And that darkness is getting worse and worse. Ask yourself then on a personal level, are you filtering reality properly? Are you seeing it through the biblical lens of scripture? Do you see yourself as the victim or the overcomer? Do you see yourself as bitter or joyful? Do you see yourself as envious 
or happy for others' blessings? Do you see yourself as covetous or content? Do you see yourself bonded to all the wrong people and separated from the right people? Do you see yourself as not trusting anybody? Or do you see yourself as trusting healthy people? Do you see your hope stuck in the past? Or do you see your hope in Christ in the future? You see, it's all about what you're seeing. It's all about how you're using the revelation of God to help you filter life. And I'm going to tell you what, if you don't filter properly, everything looks yellow in jaundiced eyes. Be careful. Our world has rejected the revelation from the Creator, and they're now seeing a world of darkness and operating in that darkness. Let's make sure we go to the light and use that revelation to be a light in this dark world. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.